All right, welcome to the wildlife experience. Uh, this evening, I'll be talking to one of the great conservation leaders in the Houston area. Um, I am here with Suzanne Simpson. Suzanne, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We were just talking about how we feel like we know each other in spite of uh, this being our first face-to-face -face meeting. Yep. And even that is fairly pixelated, but it's good to be with you. <laughs> yep, very good. Uh, so yeah, to start off, uh, you can just tell us all about yourself. You can start wherever you would like, whatever you're comfortable with, and uh, we'll go awesome. from there. Well, I'll start with where I am now. Um, for the last seven years, I've worked with Bayou Land Conservancy. Um, they're a nonprofit land trust that works in the Houston region to protect the streams and floodplains uh, and keep them natural and um, for flood control, for clean water, wildlife, and to keep floodwaters out of people's homes and businesses. So I'm the land stewardship director for Bayou Land Conservancy, which means I need to make sure the 14,000 acres we have in our conservation portfolio are being maintained and enhanced uh, via their conservation values and that they're not being degraded. Yeah. Um, but to back up a little bit on how I got here, um, my, my passion for wildlife and wildlife conservation started with the same trigger that many people of my generation have, and that is Steve Irwin. Um, seeing, hey, seeing the Steve Irwin day today. Just yeah, to Steve Irwin day today. Happy Steve Irwin day. Uh, long may he reign. Um, yeah, seeing the crocodile hunter on my TV screen, that was the first time I learned the word herpetology. Um, and the first time that I really internalized that loving wildlife could be a career. And even though I, I um, grew up in a suburb that had a, a decent amount of trees, I grew up in a, in a suburb called Kingwood, which is in Northeast Houston, and it's very forested. But I didn't come from a family that was camping. First time I went camping, I was about 23 years old. So it's, it wasn't something that was uh, ingratiated in me as, as a youngin, but I knew that I loved snakes. I knew I loved crocodiles. And I knew that I liked things that a lot of other people didn't. And now I saw that, all right, there's at least some conduit here into making mm -hmm. that a career. So let's see yes. if I can chase that. Um, so after high school, I, I got my uh, degree in biology from Texas A&M University, a, a whoop, a uh, fellow yeah. Aggie here on the podcast. Um, but even my undergraduate degree was actually, it, I was like the only non-pre-med person in those classes. Um, everybody else wanted to go to medical school. I knew I did for sure did not want to go to medical school. Uh, and so I, I really felt like I got to start my wildlife studies whenever I got my master's degree at the University of Florida. Um, and that, that really opened my eyes um, to a new world of what it means to be a, a wildlife professional, be a conservation professional, yeah. uh, and all the opportunities that are available um, to us through this avenue. Um, yeah. I did my research on the thermal ecology of the Cuban tree frog. Oh, Cuban tree good. frog is, uh, yeah, Cuban tree frog is an invasive tree frog native to the Bahamas in the Caribbean area. And then via human mediated transport, they've hopped on up to Florida where, uh, especially in South Florida, they'll be the dominant tree frog in a lot of locations. And so they just end up supplanting the normal biodiversity of, yep. of tree frogs down there. Um, and they are slowly making their way up Florida. Um, and so I had field sites in South Florida, Miami, had field sites in Tampa, and then I had field sites in Jacksonville. Um, and 
the um, crux of the study was figuring out if the frogs in Jacksonville were adjusting to the cooler temperatures there um, over the frogs that were hanging out in Miami. Um, and there was statistical significance to suggest that, yeah, they are able to adjust to a slightly cooler temperature. Um, so that was a, a, a really interesting study, interesting field work, interesting lab work. Yeah. Um, Just going out catching I, frogs. <laughs> it was a lot of going out catching frogs. And let me tell you, um, PVC pipes hammered into the ground. Oh, yeah. Um, that's where I got 95% of my samples. I mean, I'm, I'm staying at the Motel 6 in Coral Gables with 300 frogs next to me <laughs> that I have like cooled down so they don't, they don't chorus me to death while I'm trying to sleep, but there's always one, you know, that's going off. Um, but yeah, so I would, I would get, you know, all those frogs and drive them up, you know, the, the Florida coast and be like, man, none of these better escape or I am the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, that was, um, so fun. That was also whenever I caught my first alligator. Um, and it was, it was pretty small, but large in my heart. Yeah. And I, I still remember that moment always will. Um, and, and so after I got my master's, I had, I got my first professional, uh, gig, uh, managing the wildlife population at, uh, Hurlburt airfield, which is a special ops air force base. That's just South of Eglin in the Florida okay. panhandle. Yep. And so my job, I mean, when you strip away all of the trappings, my job was to make sure birds didn't hit your taxpayer funded airplanes. <laughs> and if they did to try and mitigate that risk. Yeah. Um, but I also got to do some other cool stuff. Um, like I got to work with the Southeastern Kestrel, which is a really like small populations of a subspecies of the American Kestrel that hangs out in the Florida Panhandle. Okay. Um, so I got to do some cool stuff on the side. I got to do a lot of alligator relocations, which was always fun. Um, boy, let me tell you, the airmen would love to volunteer when they knew that there was a gator <laughs> that needed to be relocated, which was very helpful. Um, and I knew, but I knew I wanted to make it back to Houston and uh, yep. I eventually did and have been with Bayou Land Conservancy for seven, seven years now. Um, and it's, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful every day that I'm able to do this for my career and that, you yep. know, things have, things have really, really shaken out in a good way for me. <laughs> Very good. Um, just to comment on uh, alligator relocations, I'm about to renew my nuisance alligator permit so you got to come catch some gators with me sometime i would love to i'm starved for a nuisance gator uh, i am too i yeah. took class uh the the year after i graduated high school uh, i was like 18 or the year the year of um and i did it for a year but i haven't done it since because i was off at school and stuff but I tried to get mine. I tried to get mine here too. And they, they didn't need any when I had the time to apply for it. So I yeah. would love to tag along. Love yeah. to. The, um, the, the, the last gator relocation that I tried to do, it was an 11 footer under a pickup truck. Um, and I, I tried to like get it out to, you know, to get all the jumping on top of it. And it, and it broke my catch pole. And at that point <laughs> I was like, FWC is going to have to come and take care yeah. of this one because crowd's starting to disperse and I'm not taking them on by myself. <laughs> um, so did you get a good feel for the, the ecosystems of Florida? I got a good feel, but, but I, I have to say whenever I came back to Texas, it was, it was good to, to, to do a dalliance in Florida yep. because I got to see um, natural resources managed in what I thought was actually a more careful uh, way. 
Um, The way that they manage their water, and it's not like Florida doesn't have its problems, they're replete with it. But the way that they manage their water, um, especially, I always thought was a little bit more um, careful and nature-based solutions. I was also definitely able to get an appreciation for the Florida ecosystems, but it was also coming back to Houston and then really having that method of comparison now that I was able to look at it through a different lens after I had gone through some real coursework and research work about what goes into making an ecosystem so special that I was able to appreciate both. You know, I was able to appreciate the Houston area. I was able to appreciate the Florida area and, um, I finally got my plant blindness cured. Um, I was very stubbornly plant blind for years. Thought they were stupid uh, (laughs) and they didn't move and care. So it took a long time for me to be convinced to that, like paying attention for plants, not only does it make you a better ecologist, it's like the best thing you can do for your career. So (laughs) it really is. Yeah. Um, I suffered the same thing for the longest time. Yeah. And it was, it was Matt Buckingham that made me see the light. <laughs> I heard of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, gotta, he's got to be come on here at some point, but. Um, oh, absolutely. That's very good. Yeah. Houston has, people don't realize Houston has some amazing biodiversity, you know, it's. Amazing and world-class, you know, world we class, do the city yeah. nature challenge here um, every year. And I'm one of the co-organizers for that challenge. And every year we are regularly placing top three in the world for for number of species seen within that one week time period if you're not familiar with the city nature challenge it's hosted generally on iNaturalist it's about five days where everybody goes out and observes as many species as they can wildlife plant fungi slime mold everything in between uploads them and we get a count for how many species are in each region and this past year Houston was third in the uh, world behind South Africa and Hong Kong. Um, So our biodiversity is truly world-class. That is not a hyperbole to say. That's, uh, I'm I'm, not surprised, but like I'm I'm shocked. That doesn't make any sense. I didn't didn't realize, I'm shook. There you go, I'm shook. (laughs) Houston, uh, it doesn't surprise me because it's, you know, Houston is so diverse. But uh, yeah, compared to those other places, you know, I didn't know how we would shape up. Well, that's the thing is people are surprised for a number of reasons. First of all, topographically, we're fairly uniform. But as you well know, um, we fit a lot into a little bit of an elevation gradient. Um, We were talking earlier about some small seepage slopes that you're noticing. And in that six to eight inches of elevation difference, you're observing a completely different plant community than the one that's next to it. And that is what begets us that enormous biodiversity because those different plant communities are hosting different insects. Those insects are preferred for different predators. And so we end up getting this huge food web with just a little bit of elevation change that we have. We're also super geologically young. Um, The surfaces anyway, our surface is very geologically young. We have a lot of Pleistocene and and Holocene um, sands. And so that was another reason why ecologists thought like there's really nothing worth studying um, in terms of a biological floristic province over here. And it wasn't until, boy, 2014, 2015, that um, the, the North American coastal plain was designated as the world's newest biodiversity hotspot because of our high rate of endemism with our plants 
and because we are experiencing high levels of habitat loss, which I, I think we, you and I can attest to seeing both of those firsthand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's finally getting the credit that it deserves. It's finally getting its share of the spotlight. Yeah. Some, some noteworthy Houston species that are no longer with us. You may want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Like well, so <laughs> recently, um, this was found in the bottomlands of Houston. It is official that the ivory-billed woodpecker um, has been declared yep, extinct. Right. Yep. Um, we, we knew that it, it was at least um, functionally extinct or ecologically extinct. It is now yep. officially extinct in the yep. eyes of the United States government. Yep. Um, some megafauna or, uh, uh, yeah, megafauna that, that Houston used to play host to, um, is the, the panther, you know, the puma. We had pumas running around here not so long ago and above every other animal, that is the one that I get the, I saw a <laughs> panther, um, the most. Oh, now I, it's not impossible. Uh, first of all, I'm the first to say I have to shake that panther's hand before I, I believe that it's a panther, but Panthers do have large home ranges of 300 miles. It is possible that we could get a transient large cat. There are some ecologists that I know know the difference between a, a panther and a bobcat that have said that they've seen traces of it, especially in West Houston, the Katy Prairie, and in the North Houston area that I work in a lot. So that is possible. Yeah. We also had jaguars um, here that were um, pretty... Uh, they, they were pretty uncommon once the late 19th century hit. And then I think they were last saw in, in at least the North Houston area in like the early 20th century. Surely they were always uh, a less common big cat being on the Northern yes. periphery of their range, but yes. still a part of our fauna. They were here, but yes, they were a less common big cat in comparison yeah. to like the mountain lion. Puma. And then we of course had black bears here. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, th this is a species that I hope can have a happy ending. Now, I don't plan to see a black bear in the woodlands anytime soon. <laughs> There's just too much habitat fragmentation. Yeah, but we do have, um, there are cameras that are set up, especially on the Texas-Arkansas border yeah. that regularly catch some good-sized bears on it. Most likely these are transient males that have been pushed out of more primo habitat and are looking for a new home. But, you know, once we start getting some, some sows in here with their cubs, um, that's going to be, I, I think that we could have a, a, a more flourishing black bear population um, than, we, than we do now. Uh, and there, there are now signs in some of those East Texas national forests that say, basically, look before you shoot because the back of a feral hog can look like the back of a black bear when that animal is running. You know, our black bears that we get um, probably aren't going to be huge. So um, it's always, always good to make sure you're, you're shooting a hog, which feel free to versus <laughs> Yeah, we need to kill as many as we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, feel free, feel free to shoot the hogs, but restrain yourself with the black bear because that'll right. get you a ticket. Um, so yeah, we, there, there, there seems to be more hope for that coming backwards. Now, um, yeah. There is a connection between, you know, the famous Florida Panthers and the Panthers of West Texas. Um, those West Texas Panthers have really helped bolster the genetic diversity of the Florida Panther, which was experiencing a lot of inbreeding. 
and so we've been able to really help out the populations of Florida panthers. So even with these disjunct populations of carnivores, we're connecting them. Surely there were some purist biologists that weren't super stoked about that because the Florida panther was, is, was a un- genetically unique subspecies, right? I am sure that there was someone that was not stoked about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it kind of me. It bugs me deep down knowing that they're not true Florida panther. Yeah. And there are other reasons to be concerned if, you know, we haven't had a robust disease ecology for these populations. Mm -hmm. Could we be causing problems there? Um, But we were, the Florida panthers were becoming so, so inbred. They have this like kinked tails. And um, we basically as conservationists have to make, pragmatic decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, the persistence of a panther population in Florida was chosen over a pure panther population was at a, a carrying capacity that could no longer produce healthy panthers. Just, uh, yeah. you know, the conservation is difficult. <laughs> it is. And a lot of those low hanging fruit, easy wins, those were the first things that were accomplished when the Endangered Species Act was passed. Yep. Um, and now we're stuck with hard problems. Um, and just to, to circle back to your question about uh, some of the extinct um, apex predators, that always makes me think of the red wolf, red which wolf. is one of the great conservation quandaries of our generation and generations before us. The, one of the first things that scientists did once they could through the Endangered Species Act was to declare the, um, the red wolf, which um, had populations in, in South Texas and the Texas coast, they declared it extinct. And that was so they could do a controlled breeding program. And they, um, they captured the last viable red wolves that they knew of off of uh, Matagorda Island. So this is a species that has real Texas roots and, and not far from us. And out of those 300 something wolves captured, I think about, you know, 40 of them were pure red wolf because the big um, issue was that genetic dilution with coyotes hybridized and that was breeding out the red wolf. And out of that, I think about 10 of them were used to spearhead the breeding program. And now all of the red wolves that are on Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in North Carolina came from that uh, parentage of red wolves that were captured on Matagorda Mm -hmm. Island. But in the news in the past couple of years, sure you know about this. Yes, this um, is very cool, very cool stuff. Yeah, there was a a red wolf or there was a coyote that looks kind of wolfy. and biologists were, of course, skeptical. I would be too, um, because practically 98, 99% of those are just going to be coyotes. But they were able to get a blood sample from this coyote that looked a little bit red wolf-esque. And they found some remnant genetic populations from old red wolves. So at least on a genetic level, they are not completely extirpated within places yes. like Galveston Island, which I, you know, I would have been the first to say, no, they're not there anymore. And then look at us. What do we know? <laughs> so are, are you okay wrong. with like next time you're at Galveston Island State Park and you see a coyote, are you going to be like, that was a red wolf? You know, have you convinced Definitely. yourself at this point? I'll, I'll, I'll be putting that up. I'll be putting that alarm up far and wide. Yeah. 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 Without, without proper investigation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to think about, right? It, it, this, it is fun know. to think about because we're so uh, conservation kind of uh, Aldo Leopold said it kind of leaves you feeling lonely because you start to see the world 
in a completely new way that the person next to you probably doesn't. And you have to explain to them that that tree isn't pretty. It's a tallow. It actually is a huge bummer. And so it's nice to have those discoveries where your imagination can run wild a little bit. It's not completely squelched by reality. Yeah. It's like we're watching like ecologists and naturalists. We're watching a different movie in life as other people, you know, like what we see when we drive around is like mostly a depressive landscape. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, depressive, sub-functional, deeply impacted lands that are not living up to their full potential. Um, And, you know, your neighbor just wants a Bradford pear, you know, and and you just, you know that there's so much more that these landscapes can do for us. Even these fragmented landscapes, even our street medians, you know, there's a lot of potential for us to, to, to activate there. I do kind of miss being a kid and, and going out to like an urban ditch and that being like the savannas of Africa or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As yeah, I know. More, yeah. It's just, I'm more fascinated all the time by learning more about natural history and biodiversity and stuff. But, the, but you see more of the, the damage that we've done, you know, everywhere. It you look. is tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but I think, you know, I think you're, you're good at maintaining that like natural curiosity. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's tough to not fall into like nihilism, <laughs> but, um, I, I really think like if just for survival reasons, like you have to maintain a level of optimism if you're doing this you work yeah. and I'm... maintain a level of, um, faith in humankind to do the yeah. right thing. And we have to also appreciate the moment we're in. We're still living in a time when there's, you know, the Amazon rainforest with uncontacted tribes. And even, you know, in Texas, we've lost a lot of our megafauna, but we still have amazing plants that represent those pre-settlement ecosystems. There's so much to go out and explore still, you know, like we, it's not the end of the world yet. <laughs> that, that's a really good point. I, you've read Land of Bears and Honey, or you at least know about yeah. that, that yeah. book um, that talks about the, uh, the big thicket. And I think it was written in the seventies or eighties. And whenever I read that book, you, I would have thought that the big thicket had turned into industrial Port Arthur by the way that the author describes (laughs) it sometimes is that this used to be so much better. And now it is super lame and fragmented. Um, and I know that the big thicket 40 years ago (laughs) looks like super awesome, even more so than it is now. Um, I'm also reading a a very short synopsis on the heritage of North Harris County that was written in the 70s, and it understandably bemoans the uplift of shopping malls and and all these things that have taken out the natural habitat. Um, And I think about when I look at aerial imageries of North Harris County 50 years ago, that, that, (laughs) that I'm like, there's so much good stuff. So you are right on the money that we need to be grateful for what we have now and focus on conserving what we have now yeah, even if thing. we feel like even if we feel like it is the the leftovers or the fragments of a begone landscape it's worth yeah. saving yeah and it's worth saving for a, a plethora of reasons you know it's just it's like we have an obligation to conserve these ecosystems because you know they're aesthetically pleasing and and they just represent um so much of the history of of the area but also the the ecosystem services are very important right these are hard working ecosystems and to conserve these ecosystems imbues a better quality of life for the citizens that surround it yep. 
we we have these eco regions down here that are filtering our pollutants from our water. They're doing that for free. They're slowly absorbing floodwaters so that it doesn't flood your your house or your neighbor's house downstream, and it's not going to cause a blowout. They're doing that for free. It's providing huge ecotourism opportunities, which is a burgeoning industry in the United States. It does all of this just by being there. And it's an, another one of those, um, it's another one of those concepts where because we're around it all the time, we take it for granted. But yeah. once we take a closer look at how blue collar these ecosystems are each and every day for us, it really makes you think twice about turning that open field with some bushy blue stem in it into another apartment complex. There is a loss there. There's a there, not just the loss of, of habitat and scenic value. There is a loss of ecosystem services yep. that take way more to recreate than it does to conserve. For every dollar that we're putting, that we're investing in conservation in Texas, we're getting nine times that value in what we're getting out in conservation. Yeah. That is an ROI that everyone should be jumping at. Yeah. That's, that's a big, um, pretty recent push in conservation is, is putting a dollar value on the ecosystem services because we, I mean, we do live in a society where that obviously matters. And yeah. that's, that's the way forward, though. We have to embrace that. I think it's a little bit of both. Ecosystem yeah. services don't tell the whole story either. Um, there is certainly concern among ecologists and conservationists that once you put a dollar value on the land, you've sold it. Um, but in order to tell the story of these lands, and that is what it is all about is telling the story of these lands, you have to put it into parameters that people can relate to yep. and people relate to dollar values. So it is so important that we bring ecosystem services to the table. And it's equally important that that's not the only thing that we're bringing to the table whenever we have a message of conservation to offer. Yeah, very good. Um... Do you want to talk any more about the history of Houston, the natural history of Houston? I would, or, I would love to. Yeah. Um, one thing I would love to talk about is the indigenous populations that were the original stewards of the Houston area. So um, if you are a, an original like old 300 Texan that what came with Stephen F. Austin, you are maybe an eighth or ninth generation Texan. And those people like are, you know, basically have Steven Seagal status in Texas. <laughs> I mean, those are, you know, those are people that you tip your cap to. Yeah. Um, the Akikisa Native Americans were here for 650 generations. So the knowledge that these communities have about these lands and the things that they have seen transpire, that is a level of traditional ecological knowledge that we should be lapping up and, and dying to get more of. And un unfortunately, um, through you know, invasion and disease and assimilation, there are very few members of those communities that are either alive or connected to that heritage. Um, and it's a, it's a huge loss for our region, frankly, yeah. um, that we well, don't have, go ahead. What was, the name, what was the name of the group, of the tribe? Akakisa, A-K-O-K-I-S-A. It's okay. sometimes also called um, Orkokisa. Um, okay. And it is also a band of the Atakapa tribe. 
Okay, Tom. So, okay, that I, I remember that. Okay. That's the large. So that's the large band, and within that band of Atakapa, you had um, the Badai. You had um, who were north uh, of the Akahisi, but the, you also had you had the Karankwa along the coast. I was about to say the Karankwa were here too. Yeah, right? they were very they were they were coastal, and then uh, northeast of us you had the Caddo. Caddo. Okay. Um, and now you have the uh, you have the Alabama Cachada um, yeah. reservation northeast of Houston, um, but that that reservation wasn't really set up I think until the 19th or maybe 20th century. So they're okay. uh, um, they were pushed into this region. Yeah. Um, so in terms of our our long time like 650 generation indigenous communities. Um, the Akikisa, the Atakapa, okay. the Badai, the Karankawa. I mean, we have a lot to learn from everyone that is that has been here, but that is a huge source of knowledge for us. And and when did they arrive to Southeast Texas? Roughly. Well, it was thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now there are uh, limited documentation on a lot of the cultural history of this particular uh, group of individuals and. Um, Part of that is because it, it took, like, we got occasionally visited by Spanish and French explorers, but we really didn't get, like, the land didn't get settled, you know, until the, the 1800s. And so there was a long period of time where we didn't have great records of what was happening down here. Yeah. Um, additionally, these populations were nomadic, or at least partially nomadic. And so folks might be coming into Galveston, or they might be coming through the Katy Prairie, and they might not meet anybody. And that doesn't mean that no one was there. It doesn't mean that that land was uninhabited. It just means that they may have been in a different section following the bison herd, yeah. or they may have been down on the coast um, hanging out on the shell middens. So it's we have to piece together very, very small pieces of a patchwork quilt. And sometimes we feel like we're filling in the rest of the DNA um, without an exact web of knowing yeah. where we're going. Yeah. But you know what we can piece together is some of the um, things that I've already mentioned that they were nomadic. They would yeah. hang out um, on the coast whenever the getting was good with seafood. And then they would move in inland um, to the Brazos, to the Trinity, to hunt buffalo. They really loved the long, wide, expansive floodplains of places like the Trinity, but they would still hang out on other more um, densely forested areas like Spring Creek because there was so the berries and the yeah, nuts were so yeah. abundant there. The foraging was great. Um, so there were a lot of different areas where they would spend their time. Um, and of course, the, the Akakisa, the Takapa Indi, uh, Native Americans were the um, big originators of Casina tea, which is a, the, the comes from Yopan Holly, which is the yes. only native source of caffeine in North America. Uh, or in the United States, I, I don't know about Mexico, but um, it's in uh, the only native source of caffeine and they yep. would dry those leaves out, make a tea um, and drink it to the point where it was a purgative. And so um, the, the Europeans watched them and they thought that the tea was, was poisonous because it was making them throw up. Um, but it actually, it was not, but that's why Yopan Holly has its scientific name, which is Ilex vomitoria. Berries um, are toxic, I, right? What's that? The berries are toxic. The scientific name for the berries is Ilex diarrhea for humans, at least. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, um, the berries are, are not toxic to animals, but toxic to humans. It's another red berry to stay away from. 
my uh, my Grammy had uh, a beautiful uh, branch of a uh, yopon in, in her house, like just decorative is in her yard, and you know all the berries on it look really pretty. I was like, Grammy, I think those might be toxic. <laughs> Maybe take that outside <laughs> when the kids are around my nephews and stuff. Yep, but, that yeah. is one good way to find out. But yeah, right. the, the wildlife love the berries. Humans, yeah. no good. Move on. Yeah. But yeah, so, so um, to to uh, round that out, uh, my point being that we we have a a lot of a lot of knowledge to learn from uh, whatever recordings we have of those early communities. And we also have to understand that a lot of the writings that we do have are written by people that were their adversaries or yeah. their captives. And so you have to read them through that lens. Um, and I think that we're really starting to get that uh, centered in us um, that this isn't, you know, th this wasn't necessarily a, a people of great brutality, yeah. but a people that were being encroached upon and yeah. were trying to figure out how they could survive. One thing I remember from, I don't know, it was like sixth grade history class was um, the Karankawa people were uh, cannibals. That is who, a, who knows how accurate that is. Yeah. That is, that's the whole thing is you see a lot of uh, references to ritual cannibalism. Yeah. And now um, historians and anthropologists are looking at that at least with a lens of, uh, a lens with a little bit more skepticism than uh, than there used to be. I, I think that it's possible that there was some, you know, ritual cannibalism, but it, it perhaps wasn't as pronounced uh, as the uh, historic uh, recitations of their culture are. It was probably just yep. something that really stood out. It would stand <laughs> out to me. Like um, one person saw it happen, like one Spanish explorer saw yeah. it. And the Karankawa are cannibals. They all, they just, yeah. other, you know? Yep. <laughs> and that was, that's great <laughs> PR if you want to get rid of people. <laughs> um, I also remember they uh, mentioned that um, they used alligator fat as mosquito repellent. Remember that, that part too. That was cool. I think that probably was the yeah. case. <laughs> you know, and I, I think about that and I'm like, boy, how desperate do you have to be to slather yourself in alligator grease? <laughs> and then I go down to like the Columbia bottomlands in June or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, I dip my whole body in alligator yeah. grease. I don't care. Like just do something to make this go away. Like I, I totally get it. Yeah. We, we can't, you mentioned the Columbia bottomlands. So we got to talk about that now. That's probably my favorite and, and what I think is the most unique ecosystem in Houston. You know, it, it is prehistoric like it is it, it is, is amazing yeah. it it feel you feel in a sense that you've walked into jumanji because <laughs> everything is so much bigger and it is like a vibe it you is know cool. you you get the spanish moss from these you know big oak trees you get you have that nuttle oak plant community um, those are the, the the biggest spiders like the biggest um golden silk orb weavers yep. that i've ever seen and they're everywhere they are everywhere um i and, and it's just like it's also it feels very untamed like i i walked up on a rat snake one time that must have gotten stepped on by a larger ungulate because its jaw was just completely oh, wow. like dislocated but like it was making it work you know yeah. like i i looked at it and i was like this is gnarly but it it was a healthy snake 
So it's just, it is, it's, it, to your earlier point, it's so nice to walk into those landscapes and feel like you're not in charge. Yeah. Would you say the Columbia bottlelands are the wildest ecosystem left in the Houston area? I would think so. Like a lot of old growth left, you know, a lot of original biodiversity still around. Huge, huge live oak trees. Yeah, I guess it depends on how kind of subjective your perception <laughs> is of the Houston area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it, it is, it is wild and it yeah. is wholly unique. You know, it's nestled in between all of this coastal prairie is this essentially like it what feels like a tropical rainforest when you're walking through it. Yeah. Um, it it is awesome. It is so awesome. Do you want to just describe what it the Columbia bottomlands are, or what it is? I yeah, yeah I'm I'm probably less familiar with it than you are, but yeah. I all I can say is that it is this swath of old growth forest. Yeah. Um, you're probably more familiar with the geology underneath it than I am. Um, that sort of emerges along in uh, Matagorda Brazoria County, where we have a ton of coastal prairie. Um, and it is this huge offset next to it that ends up bringing double the biodiversity because you have these forest adapted species right next to these prairie adapted Mm -hmm. species. And it has been the inspiration for a lot of really effective conservation efforts. I would love to hear you say more about the Columbia bottomlands. I mean, yeah, um, you know, it, it, it follows the Brazos and the, and the San Bernard and the Colorado, the Southern reaches of it. So it's like this rep- huge riparian corridor. Um, and yeah, the prairie aspect is often overlooked. Some of my favorite sites uh, to, to visit are those areas where you can see where the prairie meets those huge live oaks and the actual bottomland hardwood forest. And it uh, obviously it's very, very important for neotropical songbirds that are migrating through. And it, and it um, a lot of cool reptiles and amphibians are found there. and it's just when you go there, it doesn't, when you think of Houston, you think of like piney woods and maybe like swamps. But when you go there, it feels like, it feels like you're in another world altogether because it's, there are these huge old growth live oaks uh, with, you know, the, yeah, the Spanish moss. And it's just a, it's a really special place. And thankfully, much of it is conserved now, right? Yeah, a, a lot of, so um, it, it, there have been a lot of, unique ways to conserve it. There are national wildlife refuges that are down there. Um, There is some private lands conservation, but there's also mitigation banks down there that are being um, restored. We have one or two uh, in the, in the Columbia bottomlands and then some other land trusts have the Columbia bottomlands mitigation bank, which is the the big one down there. Um, so there have been a lot of different strategies that are coming together to conserve this. It's, I think in the early aughts, it was really elevated as a conservation priority for, uh, for Texas. And it is a crazy amalgam of, you know, feeling like you're sort of in the post Oak Savannah, but also you're in like South Texas, you know, (laughs) on the border of the Rio Grande. Uh, it, it's just a really, really interesting confluence of a bunch of different ecosystems that turn it into a total wonderland for biodiversity. And then there, there are these like mysterious palm trees, like the Brazoria yes, palm. Yes, the Brazoria palm. The Brazoria palm. Yes, you can only find trees. them. 
Yeah. yeah, you can only find them in like very small, isolated, disjunct populations. And the Columbia Bottomlands is like about the only place that you can really reliably yeah. find it. Yeah. Um, those Costa Palmate leaves. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah, really, really unique, like highly endemic species that yeah. are down there. Um, and, I, and I think that there's a lot that we haven't discovered yet oh, about the Columbia sure. Bottomlands. There's gotta be. Um, and, you know and that's, go ahead. Uh, oh, I was just going to say, it's kind of unfortunate. There's not a lot of like, uh, from what I understand, not a lot of other rare plants. Like, I don't know of any rare orchids around there, maybe some spiranthes in the prairies, but it's not, it yeah. doesn't have that same uh, orchid diversity that you get northeast of Houston or north of Houston in the piney woods. It's one it thing it's missing. It helps to have really sexy species if you're going to have <laughs> conservation efforts. Right. And, I, and I think you're right that yeah. gigantic spiders and um, world champion snakes are, are often not the things <laughs> that inspire people to not develop something. That's right. usually whenever they want to turn that into something else. But yeah, I, I agree. There's also, um, even though there, there is some, there's public land down there. Um, it's not all like super accessible. Yeah. Um, and some, some of that is okay. You know, we don't need mm. to touch everything, but, that's um, very true. That's, that's a difficult yeah. conversation to have. Uh, you know, I, I'm like pro public land all the way, but you see how, you know, you can go to Brazos Bend State Park. I mean, that's a, that's a very subpar example of the climate bottom lands and it, cause it's, you know, so many people and trails and foot traffic. Yeah. And it's not like those, some of those tracks in the San Bernard National Wildlife Refuge where like technically you're not supposed to go there, but you know, I pop in every now and then and just, yeah. to, just to photograph the an original tract of Columbia bottomlands. It's much different. Yeah, we are great at loving things to death and it is, it is a really, um, it, it's, it's a really tough, line for conservationists to walk. Yeah. Uh, but, but regardless whether or not there is access to it or, or there isn't, it is an under-celebrated ecosystem, oh, yeah. unquestionably. Very valuable. Um, Even just driving through there, there are roads in Brazoria County where you can drive down a road and like there are live oak trees like over the road, you're like driving through a tunnel of live oaks and it's just, yes. you can just drive through the area and have a good time. You know, it's Spanish moss yeah. over there. Go on a late, like late in the evening, like the sun going. And and people, when people think of live oaks, they often think of the hill country and ranches on the hill country, but live oaks are inherently a coastal species that help shelter us from the high winds of, and, 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 uh, inflow from hurricanes. Uh, so that is really where the live oaks are meant to be is on those, those coastal inflows where they, you know, they get a lot of, uh, systems from the Gulf. Yeah. And well, yeah, you can go down there and you see all these giant live oaks. They've survived all these hurricanes, you know? Yeah. They have. Hur- They've survived hurricanes, hurricanes and us. They're a coastal yeah. adapted, a hurricane adapted species. You got the, you know, the root, sprawling root system and the huge sense. branches. And yeah. When I'm, when I'm down there, I just, I always, um, I always like to imagine, you know, an ocelot scurrying about under those big oaks. I know it, it really captures the imagination of what an ecosystem can be whenever it's old growth. Yeah. All right. Um, other noteworthy, Katy Prairie. We got to talk about Katy Prairie. That's our other noteworthy ecosystem in the Houston area. That's unfortunately not getting as much, um, conservation. Uh, well, it's, it's getting developed very fast compared to some of our other ecosystems. Yeah, it gets it gets developed very quickly. Um, those really flat, treeless areas. A developer looks at that and says that's going to be a lot easier. 
Um, and it, a lot of the micro topography that the Katy Prairie bore for, you know, thousands of years has already been undone by agriculture in a lot of cases. And so you're not always seeing the same types of prairie pothole, which we have a term that we stole from the Midwest, but uh, what we call yeah. prairie potholes, uh, yeah. meme mounds that you used yeah. to see. Um, and, and so it, but it, it is still an area that is incredibly important to neotropical migrant birds. Yep. There are some really, really rare species out there. And it is also an area that could be used to facilitate species introductions for yep. um, species that have been extirpated in this area, but historically occurred here. And, and, and an example um, is the, the you know, the horned lizard. Yep, I was about to um, say that. I, I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, and so they love, they love those carpenter ants and yes. uh, the uh, harvester ants and the, uh, the Katy Prairie has some good mounds out there. Um, whether, I, I don't know if it's enough to support a population realistically without some serious yes. management efforts, but um, it's, it has those types of opportunities. Another one is the chicken turtle, which I know you're yeah. uh, super familiar with, which that's not extirpated, but it, it is rare. Um, yeah. It is a, a considered a threatened, you know, species in our state. Yeah. And you can, you can, you know, throw a rock and hit a chicken turtle sometimes on the Katy Prairie, yeah. um, which is, you know, another way that makes it really special. Um, old pe people that li have lived in Katy for many, many years, remember the snow geese um, that would, sort of covered the sky and then settle on the Katy Prairie. And of course they were, they were eating rice. Yep. Um, and as rice has turned into strip malls, um, those snow geese have in turn gone to, gone to Arkansas um, rather than hanging out at the Katy Prairie. But it just uh, is an example of the great productivity that can be found there and that it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, productivity at the expense of any you know land conservation. Yep. Um, there is some sustainable farming operations going on out there that have been really successful for both. Yeah, and that's that, in an area like that. When we're talking about conserving it, we're not just talking about biodiversity at this point. We're talking about the farming culture is disappearing mm -hmm. there. You know, the far, like it's not just yeah. wildlife lovers like trying to you know thwart development to save species. We're also like you know there's a this this culture here, this farming culture that's disappearing. As, as Houston spreads and sprawls, you know? Yeah, the Katy Prairie Conservancy wasn't necessarily founded to, um, it, it certainly wasn't founded to prevent development. It was it was founded to conserve waterfowl habitat. Yeah. That was the, the ethos. And it was a bunch of waterfowl hunters that, yep. that uh, went out there and started the idea to oh. conserve that land. That's cool. I did not know that. That's that's very yeah. cool because I'm a, I'm a and, pretty passionate waterfowl hunter and I'm always, you know, trying to advocate for for, uh, you know, hunting as a as a conservation tool. And, and also, you know, hunters are also very passionate conservationists sometimes. And so that's that's cool to hear. Yeah, this is one. Uh, this is absolutely an intersection where both uh, were, were for the for the greater good. And I, I definitely believe also that hunters can and should be our, our strongest conservationists. Yeah. Um, that yeah. they're they're not all like you, but um, yeah, uh, that's part of the mission of this podcast is to have these conversations. And a lot of people just don't know that they can they can view themselves as a conservationist. You know, they just kind of grow up hunting and it's whatever. But that's a part of my goal here is to you know have those conversations. 
Yeah, I would say yeah. it's your responsibility to, yeah. to view yourself as a conservationist yeah. and not just a conservationist because you're like getting a, a champion buck or a champion hog, but like how can you hunt in a way that promotes conservation and a yeah. way that promotes biodiversity and uh, species richness. But um, yeah. To, yeah, to your point, it is the waterfowl hunters that really founded the Katy Prairie Conservancy. Um, and that it, at that time, um, the the land wasn't as highly developed as it is now. And that mission has really has shifted though. They're, they still stay true to their hunting culture. Um, they, uh, you know, really have to work hard to raise money so that they can buy land before, you know, it is completely out of their price range. And that is really difficult to do. Um, it's, frankly, it's, it's hard to do almost anywhere in Houston, but that West side, those prices have gone up, um, it's been skyrocketing speaking of that you're part of the effort for deer park prairie or so bioland conservancy was bioland, yes bioland, this, yeah. this um this is an effort that predated me by a few okay, months I, I was on the back i was on the back end of it okay um but bioland conservancy was the fundraising arm to raise four million dollars in six weeks to protect protect a 50 acre prairie in deer park that is considered one of the top 0.1% platinum coastal prairies that you will find. And um, you wanna talk about conservations, uh, uh, con conversations among conservationists. There were a lot of conservationists that were like $4 million can buy a whole hell of a lot of land that was my initial somewhere point. else. But there are two, two points to that. First of all, most of the time, those urban projects aren't dipping into the same pot of money as those $4 million for 4,000 acre projects are. Yeah. You're usually fun, have, use, having different fundraising arms at yeah. work there. Second is the whole point of Deer Park Prairie was for it to be an urban prairie that people could look at. And it was, per, it was slated for development. And in fact, it's the type of project that if I was proposed with today and someone was like please save this i'd be like it is gone through commissioner's court to be a subdivision like we yeah, are too late too late it's it was absolutely pulled from the brink the last brink of development like when when gandalf has his edge on the cliff before he falls into the balrog <laughs> that type of like edge of existence um and i I, I, it's, it's, it is considered the fastest, most effective conservation project in, in Texas history. And now it preserves a platinum coastal prairie, a museum to the past, yep. and, and, and an incredible link to our cultural history um, that everyone can at least drive by and it is yep. in, in an area where they can view it. And so, I mean, it's not, it's never gonna support, you know, the original prairie fauna, but, the value of it is in the fact that it is a representation, a small, tiny little piece of the coastal prairie with the some many of the original plants still present. The plant diversity is insane. In terms of species richness, like it has, it has more, you know, a, a highly concentrated species richness that's more than like the adjacent like Nash Prairie, which is a larger yeah. prairie that um, is owned by the Nature Conservancy. Yeah. You know, there was a, a, a floristic um, study that came out that showed like Deer Park Prairie does have the highest concentration of species richness out of all of these other well-known prairies that have more acreage, which to me proves that this it's was value. a good investment. Yeah. You know, this was yeah. worth saving. No doubt.
Yeah, I, I, I stopped by there one time, but it, access is kind of weird. <laughs> access is weird. It's not open. It's not open to the public. But if you are, you know, if you get to know the Native Prairies Association of Texas, they have a lot of volunteer days. Yeah. And I know that they have public events and they're starting to, you know, work on getting a boardwalk out there yeah. um, so that so that people aren't stomping on the prairie whenever they're yeah. going out there. Yeah, but um, and that'll make that. it a little bit more accessible. But I, I yeah, they're, they've done a lot of uh, school field trips out there. Um, so yeah, it's, it is limited access, but it's not impossible. So we got the, we got the Nash Prairie in Missouri County. Still has original Mima Mounds, which is amazing. Yep. I actually was out there two weeks ago um, for like a conference. We got a tour by Susan. Oh, nice. Name, but the lady that, who was very important for that property to be conserved. Um, I know, I know. The story exactly is amazing. The, the story is, uh, I'm not going to tell it right now, but like how that came to be was kind of phenomenal. Do you know it? Uh, uh, not like for Nash. Was, like she was just this lady who her husband, let me get this right. Her husband owned yeah, the land. She was at a Texas master naturalist meeting. She just joined Texas master naturalist and they're is having a, Connelly? maybe, but they're having a presentation about prairies and in the presentation, they were like, there's this really cool property that we don't have access to that's possibly the best prairie in the area. And she's like in the crowd, like shaking. She's like, that's my property. <laughs> and and so she, you know, they, you know, told them and now it's conserved. Wow. It's along those that's lines. It was, the, the story was really neat. Um, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a cool prairie. Sometimes those amazing serendipitous conservation moments happen. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, we... Uh, at Bayou Land Conservancy, we work with a lot of land that's owned by public entities like mm -hmm. county precincts and stuff like that. In fact, we did yep. the first conservation easement with a county government in the state of Texas um, back in 2002. It's about to have its uh, uh, its 20 year anniversary out in Montgomery County. It's the Montgomery County Preserve, uh -huh. very originally named, but at the time that was the only <laughs> Montgomery County Preserve. So it made sense. Um, but yeah, we, you know, so I, I often will work with government agencies or I'll work with mitigation um, agencies. And so getting those private landowner stories that are like really heartfelt, um, <laughs> are, they're rare because again, that low hanging fruit has mostly been picked, but yeah. they're awesome when they happen. Yeah. They, they keep you going. Some people might not be familiar with what a mitigation bank is. Do you want to? It's yeah. a cool concept. I, mean, I, I certainly can give you my take on it. I have, I am not a consultant and I never have been, but yeah. I've, I've worked on the uh, conservation easement side of a lot of mitigation banks. Yeah. And what mitigation banks are, is they are the soup du jour of the Corps of Engineers on the best way to offset impacts to waters of the United States. In yeah. this case, it can also offset endangered species impacts. There are also nutrient nutrient banks in the yeah. in places like Virginia. Depends on your state laws, but the Corps of Engineers regulates um, discharges into the waters of the United States. Yeah. And I won't go in. Yeah, we're not going to go too, too far in detail, but uh, you know, for people I don't listening, go too probably far in probably like, what's what the heck is a mitigation bank? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what a jurisdictional wetland is. That's <laughs> that uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't every, every couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I'm going to use the word wetlands. And when wetlands, I'm saying that streams, very broad yeah. word, what I mean is wetlands that are, you know, going to be considered by the core to be jurisdictional. So yeah. if uh, somebody is filling or impacting wetlands in a way that is legislated under the Clean Water Act, 
that person has to offset those impacts. And that yeah. offset is what you call a, a mitigation. Yeah. And so these mitigation banks are set up to sell credits to these people that are, to these organizations that are impacting, these entities that are impacting wetlands so that they can buy credits from that bank and then essentially continue with their project. And those credits are going into a restoration of an ecosystem elsewhere or the preservation of that ecosystem or the enhancement. Um, and, and so it's basically a way to inject markets into conservation and to try to try to conserve land in a way that is market-based and in a way that makes fiscal sense, yep. while also um, adding a lot of natural resource value to us. Yep. Now there are concerns. There are um, concerns. It is sure. not a, is not a perfect system. I will I'll, I I won't um, I won't poop on it, but I will say one concern is that you know whenever you are developing. Um, downstream and your mitigation banks are, are upstream, you are essentially exporting your ecosystem services elsewhere. Yep. And so we don't really, a, a lot of people don't necessarily see the benefits of those mitigation banks in their communities because those yep. um, ecological offsets are going somewhere else. Somewhere else. Yep. Counter argument to that is it's within the same watershed or a nearby watershed and we're yep. all connected. So we can all go round and round with that. It is not yep. a perfect system, but it is the system that is in place right now. And yep. it is one of the best ways to conserve large tracts of land for landowners that can't donate a conservation easement that need that profit margin in order yep. to keep their operations going or in order to for the land to make sense to keep in their yep. family rather than selling it to a developer so it's yep. another tool in the toolbox yeah and, and um like the landowner benefits both in the fact that they get a wetland like a landowner that allows a wetland mitigation bank to be built on a property they have, you know, wetlands now or a restored wetland or, but do they also, they also benefit monetarily, right? They can. Yeah. It depends. It depends on how they work that out with the mitigation banking right. entity. Yeah. But in most cases, they have some sort of a contract with yeah. the person providing the mitigation banking services to where they are getting a cut of that profit. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And if you're, you're a landowner that isn't, you should have negotiated a better contract. You described all that, <laughs> right. You described all that way better than 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 I can. I always try to describe <laughs> to my friends, and 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 it, it's like I don't know. I just I don't have a good spill yet for it. So that was good. Yeah, it takes time to refine it. I you know I've but, uh, I've fallen out of practice truly. Right. Um, I have the excuse of only being in in the field of mitigation and stuff for a couple months. So yeah, exactly. You'll get there. <laughs> I wouldn't worry too Do you want to talk about land trusts in general? I would. Yeah. So Bayou Land Conservancy, the organization I work for um, is a land trust, and we happen to work in the North Houston area, the headwaters of a lot of the uh, waterways that feed into Lake Houston. But a land trust in general is an organization whose primary mission is to conserve land. Yeah. But, you know, that is our in our in our hierarchy of needs. The bottom part of the pyramid is for us to conserve land. And we are. Uh, set up uh, in order to do that. Now, the um, Bayou Land Conservancy, we are not um, the government. We are not government adjacent. We're not government funded. Every land trust is different, but that's something that landowners always ask. Yeah. Um, we are a community supported nonprofit. Yeah. Um, and one of the tools that land trusts use to conserve land 
is a conservation easement. And a conservation easement is a voluntary agreement between a landowner and a land trust where the landowner says, look, I want this land to be preserved forever in its natural state. And I'm willing to give up things like the right to subdivision because I don't want this to be chopped up into a bunch of little pieces. And I want to give up the right to um, maybe build impermeable surfaces on this. And so those bundle of, uh, of rights that they give up, it's called, like a, it's called the development rights, are held by the land trust. Yep. And the land trust is the long-term steward of the natural values of that land. And what that looks like in practice is essentially, um, it is a you know, document that is formulated and tailored to the landowner's need. Each one is different. Um, it is recorded at the county office. And then uh, at least once a year, I uh, check in with the landowner and I get to go visit their property and make sure that everything is going well over there and that the terms of the conservation easement are being upheld. And if they aren't, um, if let's say their neighbor has cut down some of their trees or maybe, uh, you know, polluted one of their waterways, I work with the landowner to resolve that situation so that the conservation values can be protected. And you're going to prioritize, you know, areas that have quality biodiversity, right? Yes, the area, you know, areas that have quality biodiversity are the easiest cells for us. But we also will take on projects like mitigation banks that sometimes start with a fallow field that, you know, really don't seem to have much to write home about. But if there's a mitigation plan in place or a restoration plan in place and it has, you know, adequate funding behind it, those are viable projects too. Yeah. And two, I'll say a little bit more on that. one of the biggest impacts that we have to uh, our, our habitats, especially on the West Fork of the San Jacinto, is um, aggregate mining. Yep. And in Texas, they're really, and, but when I say aggregate mining, I mean like sand and gravel mining. In our particular area, we have the type of sand that makes perfect concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it is uh, mined and extracted, and then the miners basically leave this uh, moonscape in the ground, this giant hole that has no topsoil, it really has has no value, and they don't have to remediate for that, they're just able to leave. So they just cut everything down, extract all of the sand, and then get out. And that's a situation that is unique to Texas. We have less we have fewer common sense laws about aggregate mining than I'm not just talking about California or Oregon. I'm talking about like Louisiana and Iowa, you know, people that people that share a lot of our ideology, we are not keeping pace with them at all. So we we don't have any, you know, people can mine right up to the riverbed. There are um, requests from aggregate miners to mine in the riverbed. Oh my goodness. Um, There really is no, regulation for this industry all they have to do now you know we got some legislation passed that basically says you need to wear a name tag and register with the tceq so we at least know who you are um so on the advocacy wing bioland conservancy has been pushing really hard for common sense regulations of the aggregate mining uh industry that are are absolutely um, done elsewhere. And those companies are able to make a profit in states where they have these very common sense environmental remediation requirements. Yep. So yep. Um, 
Texans for Responsible Aggregate Mining is a good group to uh, follow on Instagram if you're interested okay. in learning more about the aggregate mining industry. Can you repeat that? Te Texans? Texans for Responsible Aggregate Mining. It's, it's TRAM, T-R-A-M. I got you. I got you. I'm going to look into it. I've seen the aerials. You can just look on you know Google Maps, North Houston. You can see these huge like white spots. And yeah, that's yeah. that's them, right? Along the a, Spring a Creek. A third of our of our floodplain of the West Fork of the San Jacinto is impacted by sand and gravel mining, either active mines or mines that have been dug out and then just left. Yeah. So it's um an, an undersung uh issue that we need to take you know, that we need to be more responsible for. It's not a responsible use of our natural resources. It just yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And to, yeah, whatever you're interested in, wildlife-wise, like your hunter, fisherman, natural, like any of this, this yeah. should be a problem to you. <laughs> if you're, if you're a private industry, you know, these, these people are getting away without having to do any of the remediation that I'm sure other industries are absolutely having to do, yeah. you know, they're, they're sort of getting off uh, scot-free. And whenever you have these environmental remediation projects, that also creates money for, you know, consultants and, yeah. uh, and, and that there are, there, there are jobs to be created yeah. by having those sorts of remediation yeah. projects in place. So from an, this isn't anti-economics. This yeah. is pro-common sense that yeah. also happens to marry with economics. Gotcha. And, and those sides can, can have like, the biodiversity can return if, if you work really hard at it and, and restore it. And Yes, it, it, yeah. it is my experience that if you build it, they will come, bears truth. Yeah. And sometimes they will, they will come in ways that you have no idea how. Um, you know, the, the MD Anderson Pocket Prairie in the, in the heart of the Texas Medical Center, which is incredibly uh, industrialized, has a ground dwelling bee in it and entomologists are like how did this get here it doesn't fly it just walks like how did it get to this patch of prairie you know wildlife and 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 flora will astound us in the ways that it returns whenever we give it half a chance yep very good okay the big thicket how much uh time do you spend in the big thicket <laughs> Well, I get to spend a lot of time in the southern reaches of the Piney Woods, yep. which I affectionately call the little thicket because it really is the last little wing of yep. where the big thicket, at least the big thicket floristic province, province exists um, up to the San Jacinto River and, and Spring Creek. And I and I'm there all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I get to spend a lot of a lot of great time there. And we're able to Bayou Land Conservancy protects a, a large part of the Spring Creek Greenway which extends about 40 miles. And it is this lush riparian corridor that has a lot of good access, which not every river in Texas does. It's very yeah. accessible. Um, it, is, it, it can be paddled, it can be hiked, it can be biked. Um, it is a wonderful urban nature center in North yeah. Houston. Do you spend much time or have you been out? Surely you have to like the heart of the big thicket, like Hardin County, Tyler County. Oh, yeah. and uh, that's oh, yeah. the, that's the really good stuff. That it, um, the western part of it, I guess. Ever some books have different definitions, or there's like the the traditional big thicket. It's like mainly Hardin County, Tyler County, but yeah. the floristic province is really just um, like the southern piney woods, right? 
Yeah, it, the, the, the western reaches of the Floristic Province, basically the westernmost point is like the, the San Jacinto River oh, really? and, and into the, its confluence with yeah. um, Spring Creek. So yeah, yeah. that really is like the, the westernmost um, part of it. And then it go, but uh, there were some um, ideations of it a long time ago where it went all the way out to the Brazos River and oh, like encapsulated <laughs> College Station. I, oh, I don't know, like, wow. I didn't live back then, so I couldn't tell yeah. you. I have a hard time believing that that is, I think that there would be a lot of variation in what you would yeah, see over right. that range. But yes, the heart of the big thicket in, um, you know, uh, Harding County, the county I just got a speeding ticket in. Um, <laughs> let's see. They, Tyler, they Jasper. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Liberty, oh, that was in Liberty County. Liberty County, yeah. Um, and and uh, even um, in the northernmost part of of Jefferson County, near yep. like on the just west of Beaumont, um, yep. it dips in there. Um, yes, I I am fortunate to be able to spend a good amount of time in in the Big Thicket, um, and it is like a new experience every time. It is I learn something every time. All you have to do is walk into the forest and open your eyes and you will notice something new and like magical. Not, not, that is um, (laughs) not a hyperbole from me uh, every time you get to walk in it. And it is the biological crossroads of the United States. It is America's arc. The species during our last glacial maximum migrated into that area. And so you get this uh, conglomeration of species that, are really more reminiscent to you of like Western hill country, blackland prairie landscapes versus the westernmost uh, species of the Appalachia. And they're like all- um, American they're Beach. All there What's that? Like American Beach. American Beach, right? yes. Like I American, love yeah. the beach out there, they're so cool. Yep, American Beach. And then you'll get, you know, like Yucca, not far yeah. from it, you know, on those sandy, <laughs> up, uh, sandy outcrops. So- yeah. It is um, fascinating, confusing, and wondrous. <laughs> and it, it's um, an area that was had less uh, fire influence. It still had fire, but because of how wet it was, there was a little yep. bit more fire suppression. And so that's where you get the thicket part of it. Is it yep. really is um, very, very dense in that in that part and those bagels and stuff yeah. like that. And those pal- those palmetto flatwoods are just yeah so thick like you'll just you'll just look out across and it's just straight water oak and and palmettos dwarf palmettos as far as you can see so cool i wish there were black bears still there that would just be so cool (laughs) i know and and you can really see why it would be such an awesome place for them there's so many both hard and soft mass uh, opportunities out there for them to get like super gigantic uh and and really fat um and yeah, I think that the Western part of the big thicket, where, uh, which I see a lot, um, really, I think, I think what you're alluding to is just the suppression of fire. Yeah. Like the, it is supposed to have fire influence every yeah. now and again. And yeah. it's just been removed for so many generations that Yopon and American Beautyberry have no competition out yeah. there. And so you don't get the same ground cover diversity that you do elsewhere. Yeah, I, I, was, at, I was at the Kirby Nature Trail last weekend or the weekend before last yeah two weeks ago um and i hopped over to the the sand hill part of it yeah um it's very sad back there because they're not burning at all it like the longleaf savanna is just the long the longleaf pine savanna is 
is uh, so thick with woody plants and just like it does not look like some of the longleaf savannas you'll see like in an Angelina National Forest, which is really well managed by the U.S. Forest Service and burned every year, every other year, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's such a huge. Or even the forest which right yeah. you know is even uh, an even more urbanized forest than the angelina yeah it um really wish which i guess the big thicket preserve does national preserve does burn some but not at the kirby trail and i wish they would burn there but yeah they, i they know burn that they burn it, some they burn but big i don't sandy, big sandy um yeah track they burn or whatever that track is called it's along big sandy creek yep they burn yep. up there and it, it looks much better you know well uh, that hopefully it's on the docket hopefully they can get some funding to do that right yeah it's all about funding right mm -hmm. yeah funding, in the, <laughs> funding and making sure your neighbors aren't upset by the air quality <laughs> oh, yeah well that's the unfortunate <laughs> thing about like, when you get into a conservation career you learn that like without money we can't do any of this shit <laughs> we have yeah, to it's, so, like, it comes down to money you know it all comes down to true. money and uh, you know especially in the nonprofit world People yeah. can um, really snub their nose at at nonprofits taking money from like BP or or Exxon. Yeah. Um, and the the fact is is like you know if if that private donor is going to give us the amount of money that we're going to get from a corporate sponsor, then great, we'd be happy to tell them we don't want <laughs> their money. But we're you know as long as you're you know you're taking the money and and not having to you know put a member of their you know staff on your board or something like that you know it's just yeah. if it really is just money that you can put towards your programming um, that is how land can be conserved and that's how nonprofits can keep their lights on so yeah. we're just we're not well funded enough to um, to to like snub our nose at at those sorts of, of yeah. funding you know the, those funders and in fact they can end up being really really great conservation partners they really can be. I heard or I read that the Powderhorn uh, Ranch was paid for with BP oil spill lawsuit money. And that's probably that's like probably the biggest coastal conservation win in Texas in recent decades. Right. That right is on a the money. Yeah. Huge, beautiful tract. If you just look at the aerials, some of the best coastal prairie and it's conserved now. You know, it sucks that the BP oil spill ever happened, but at least, you yeah. know. There was some. There was uh, a human. There was good. human tragedy. Um, there was human yeah. life loss. There was um, wildlife impacts. But it, you know, whenever you are trying to remediate for that, we can feel comforted that the money went to the right place and the right people yeah. in order to create a project like Powderhorn Ranch. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't just go to you know admin fees or to preserve land in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Like this, really, this land was infused into the coastal areas. Yeah. Speaking of and like that, that, you know, Powderhorn Ranch is a project that Texas Parks and Wildlife has had their eye on for decades. Yeah. And yeah. land projects sometimes have a way of coming back to you. And it can be frustrating because you feel you're so close, but it's just not the right time. And with some patience, you can you can get there. And that is the perfect example of a land project coming back around to you. Yeah. Tell me this. If like say someone wants to um, you know, donate to conservancies. Is it worth it? Like, just like, I've always thought I wanted to like, when I get a job and like have money, I can like maybe like donate like a small percentage of my paycheck to like the nature conservancy. But now like, it seems like land is so expensive 
it almost seems like whatever I donate is just, it means literally nothing. <laughs> oh no, what you it, donate means everything. It does, it does mean something. Okay. Uh, that's yeah, just what I'm and, asking and, you because I don't, I didn't, I, I was just confused. I'm like, this, would it actually be worth it or is it like just going to like, like so I, I might make a, a small suggestion and this is my, maybe my bias showing, but I think that there's something yes. behind it. Yeah. Um, donate to your local land trust. Yeah. Um, the, that seems like it would go straight to like wildlife conservation rather than like a big, big one, like nature conservancy, which has exactly, a lot of people, exactly. that, it, a lot of salaries are, to pay. And... Well, so I'll, I'll, without going too much into what it means to donate to a nonprofit, I would also say that you shouldn't feel bad about your money going to keeping the lights on, like well, going to those people are, are the ones that are conserving the land, right? Yeah. Like you want, you want as, uh, as direct a path as possible. If you're going to go ahead and yes. donate your money to something, right. And your local land trusts are running lean and mean, you know, yeah. there's not, there's not a lot of fat and there's not a lot of pork yeah. that your money is going to, your money is simply going to, uh, conserving land and the people that are conserving that land and, and it and it is that's, that simple and, and truly like we um you know our our like donor programs are you know first of all it's any amount and you are yeah. a donor you, yeah. you donate five dollars you're a donor but our recurring donor programs that we push are like fifteen dollars a month yeah. you know like that is netflix um, that's not even Netflix now, I don't think. Yeah. And, and we push that amount because that's a meaningful amount. Yeah. Like we're not humoring ourselves. That's a meaningful amount that makes a difference in our programs and our ability to execute our mission. Yeah. So any, any amount that you donate matters. Yeah. And do you have a lot of people that donate just like individually, like me, not necessarily yeah. from a, biz a business or Yes, we, we are supported yes. by our individual donors. We just yeah. had our um, annual gala, which is our, you know, annual thank you to our, to our donors and partners. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of people that see our signs on the trails that they're using yeah. um, or, you know, while they're paddling Spring Creek or are just looking up an environmental organization in their area because they're new to Houston. Um, there are a lot of reasons that people come to us and find us and decide that our mission is one that they're interested in supporting. And it's a privilege every time yeah. that happens. That's good. I'm glad I brought that up because I, I, I'm sure a lot of other people feel the same or felt yeah. the same ways as, as I did. So it, it just never have, ha has been clear to me. Uh, yeah. It's good to know. I'm going to look into that more and more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good stuff. <clears throat> All right. Where do we go from here? <laughs> well, if you want, I would be happy to talk about um, my lovely side project, which yeah, is yeah. The, oh, the book. The book. The book, Wild the book. That's we have not. Yeah. The book. We've kind of drifted around it a little bit. But we have not. We've, talked we've, about it directly. we've been circling it. We've been circling it. Um, right. Yeah. So whenever I'm I'm not working my my full time job during the day, um, I switch over to my com other computer at night. And I'm writing a book with uh, John Williams, who is a local ecologist um, and personally known to Andrew, uh, called Wild Houston. And this is a book that is based off of a syndicated series of books on urban nature. Um, Wild LA uh, is, is out and was very successful. And so the publishing company was like, all right, we want to show more of these stories of urban nature. And Houston is a natural fit to showcase our biodiversity. So the book is three major sections. 
first section is going to be natural history, cultural history. Um, that is my like long labor of love section where we really talk about how Houston got to be what it is today, um, why it's worth saving and why it's worth remembering how we got here. And then the second section is 101 species that you should know if you're gonna live in Houston. And that is John's baby. Um, amazing photographer, uh, great writer. He's really bringing those species to life. And then the third section is field trips, places that you should go uh, in and around Houston, from far-flung areas that are real true blue wilderness to pocket prairies that are next to your gas station, why these areas are all important to preserving our biodiversity and how you can get there and have a good time. So um, it's allowed me, it's given me permission to take a lot of trips that I've wanted <laughs> to take yeah. Um, it's given, it's also given me permission to buy photography equipment that I've thought about. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's, it's really a, a three pronged approach to getting people excited about living in Houston. Whenever we have a lot of folks that move here from different places and whenever yeah. people move here, um, they're always like, well, where can I go outdoors? And what, like, what is there to see here? And this is your guide to that. Yeah. And if you were a long time Houstonian, I, I bet you a steak dinner that there will be a place in that book that you've never heard of and never been to that you can go to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you move here from like the West coast or like somewhere out West or, you know, anywhere but Texas, you're probably like, where's the public land? <laughs> you know, where, where is my public where is land? The, where are all the national parks? You know, exactly. And it's a lot of zooming in and out on Google maps yeah. uh, to try and figure out where you can go. So we are taking that work out for you and showing you some of the best places that you can yeah. go to both in the city and outside of the city. Um, because our public lands that we do have here are super precious because yeah. we have the most privately owned acreage uh, out of any other state. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but, you know, it's just the way it is. It, it, yeah, you can make many arguments for and against the yeah. amount of private land ownership that we have. Yeah. I think we could all do with a little bit more public land here in Texas, yeah. um, but that means that we have to have really close relationships and a lot of respect for our private land stewards. So there yeah. you go. And we, we do have a lot of good good land stewards, you know, and it's becoming more more and more valuable to these landowners to go ahead and, you know, save the resources on the property rather than sell out to the developers. Um, yeah. And we, we have to make it, you know, we have to make it worth their while. We have to let the public understand that these large swaths of well-managed private land have public benefits that, yeah, they, that they are reaping because of that stewardship. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, so, that is the long and short of uh, the book, Wild Houston. Yeah. We are hoping, I think, the, I think the earliest that it will hit your bookshelf is late next year um, yeah. because I am very much still writing it, but <laughs> we do have deadlines and the Sword of Damocles hangs above us and we must eventually turn something in lest we get beheaded. <laughs> uh, and this will be um, really the first like comprehensive look at Houston wildlife and places to see Houston wildlife, right? In a book. It's the first book of its kind. We have yep. books on hikes you can take in Houston. We yep. have books on Houston's natural history. We of course have field guides of species, yep. but putting the three of those together and sort of making it the same voice throughout, um, that is unique and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a one of its kind opportunity.
Yeah. I'm yeah. And we hope exciting. that it will feature the photos of a local photographer, um, Andrew Austin. <laughs> That's another thing. I'm really excited about that part. <laughs> who's who's still young enough to give us his images for free and <laughs> right. Yeah. Never take money for such a such a valuable project. <laughs> so nice of you. Felt the same way about um deep in the heart stuff. I can't take money for oh, that. yeah. Too too important. Yeah. Just, it, get invited it'll is, be great. Uh, yeah that is another great project yeah that, i hope you'll be able to have also, one of those folks we got here. deep in the heart and we got the houston wildlife book to look forward to for 2022 that's right it's coming it's yeah. the 2022 is the year that wildlife takes over finally yeah it's gonna be a great year you know yes we can submit to our cattle egret overlords <laughs> yeah cool um the biggest conservation challenges for Texas or Houston or both or Houston first. Biggest. Okay. So biggest conservation challenge for Houston. That's yeah. That's, um, and I'm going to be very, <laughs> I'm going to be very in the present about this. Okay. Um, the biggest challenge that I deal with, the, with the highest regularity is um, managing our flood resources in a way that is going with nature and not against nature. Yeah. Trying to undo the mindset of water needing to move quicker, deeper, and faster to Galveston Bay rather than letting um, our floodwaters have an area for it to soak up more slowly, percolate, and then slowly migrate down to a water source. So there are multiple, there are so many factors at play here, but one of course is, um, can, you know, trying to get it through the heads of those who are building that you can't build in the floodway or the floodplain, um, or you, you shouldn't build in the floodway or the floodplain. And in fact, understanding that our floodplain maps are outdated and what we think is the 500 year floodplain that is at a very low chance of flooding is in fact much more at risk than we realize. And, and yeah, like and, the development's going to continue, you know. Yeah, it, we got to we got to work with that in mind. That the urban sprawl is it's not going to stop anytime soon. I would I wish it would, but obviously it's not. Yeah, and so you know, how can we incorporate conservation into into those yes. types of of plans? Yeah. Um, and and a big one is you know people want their houses to not flood, but they also want green spaces, and there is such what seems like a, a beautiful Venn diagram of where you can have both. Yeah. And um, we have to, we have to help those plans along and, and try to influence the decisions that are being made, especially since this, the bond passed um, that has funded a lot of, of these um, flood mitigation projects. Right. Texas writ large, I think water conservation is going to be the, the yeah. biggest challenge statewide. If every water right that has been, uh, delegated in Texas was exercised, we would soak up all the water that we have. Um, we have over allocated water rights in Texas um, and water is becoming an increasingly precious resource. It can be easy for us uh, in East Texas to forget that. But 10 years ago, we were in the middle of such an historic drought that the, the effects that that has on our ecosystems, we're still, I'm still seeing those impacts yeah. whenever I go out to sites, the tree death that it caused. Yeah. Um, 
And, and so it, it can be hard for us to remember that we have water as a very limited resource here whenever it's in your home. But in truth, our water conservation principles um, need to be leading, leading the way. And the further west you go in Texas, the more keenly that's felt. Yep. And yeah, like in the hill country, you know, the, the, the urban sprawl in Austin is bad. And also you get these areas um, where like big ranches are getting subdivided up and these ranchettes are built. And, you know, instead yeah. of native prairie grasses, people are planting, you know, Bermuda and people want to move out to the country and then they move out there and they make it like city, you know? Yeah. And we're seeing that with uh, COVID and people being able to work remotely, there's a bit of a flight out to um, a, a new country paradise, but yeah. most people don't want 300 acres to manage, but I could do with like between 10 and 50. Yeah. And that's whenever you get those sorts of subdivisions. That's, and that's another reason why conservation easements are so useful as they, yeah. they can, they can really limit the amount that land is subdivided, but yes, you're the, when people think about low intensity development and having a bunch of like 10 acre, 10 acre ranchettes, some people see that as a conservation solution, but in fact, you really are just fragmenting land and, and allowing just smaller pockets of like what you would consider urbanization to erupt. You can just, you can go on Google earth and look at historical imagery and you can just go through time and see these huge tracts of land get, you know, divided up and you can see the different land use practices on each and it's yep. terrible. It's terrible. Yeah, I mean, there there are ranchettes popping up in like Terlingua, you know, areas that you think people really wouldn't be interested in driving out to. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a concept that is being replicated all over Texas. Yeah, and it's made worse by the fact that a lot of the original ranch owners, these you know older folks, are you know they're starting to get old and they're passing the land off to their their millennial or Gen Z kids yep. that live in the city and they don't care about it they, you know they just sell it all off and they you know yeah. we're losing the ranching culture we're losing the farming culture we're losing wildlife resources just bad all around you know? yeah that is the plight of the legacy land owner and um that's why we have to bring more tools to the table to make conserving the property uh an economic possibility yep. and one that you know preserves all of the benefits that you just that you just described um, and conservation easements are one tool it's not going to be perfect for everyone um, and that's where I think we really need to um, emphasize people that are stewarding our water and yeah. um, provide incentives for them to continue that stewardship of of our very limited water resources yeah do you think much about like you know there's like species specific conservation efforts I feel like the like in the time we live in like prioritizing entire like land and ecosystems is so much more important you know and this is a very yes. nuanced nuanced thing but that's just like conserving land yeah. is more important than conserving any one species at this point and 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 you're you're right um but in terms of telling a story it's a lot easier to talk about the golden sheep warbler well the, the, than... get the flagship species to exactly. use for that but yeah. Every every effort needs a mascot. That's why keystone yeah. species are such a good. I mean, if nothing, they're good science, but they're better PR. Yeah. Um. And we, and I, I agree that landscape conservation is where it's at. Not like yeah. necessarily individual species conservation, but those species need those landscapes, yeah. and that is one way to tell the story of why conservation is important. And the flagship so it's, species. It's just another. Yeah 
part of telling the full story, along yeah. with ecosystem services, having those charismatic yeah. species that you can throw at someone yeah. and say, this is an alligator snapping turtle. Yeah. This is a river otter. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? We're about an hour and a half in. We can go. I know. I, we, can, we can wrap it up. I, Whatever I you want to like do. We've had a pretty darn good conversation yeah. um, about some yeah. about some high points. Um, yeah. I my I guess my my closing message um, would just be to re remind whoever's listening that um, the only thing that has ever made a difference for our wildlife are the passionate people um, like you, Andrew, and the people that are listening to this podcast. Um, and don't ever feel like your effort is too small to make a difference because indeed it is the only thing that that ever has. So um, thank you for all your uh, work that you've done to spotlight conservation and the wildlife of Texas and um, a lot of encouragement to anyone that's considering pursuing a, a conservation career or a, a conservation minded ethos in your life. Yeah. We have a lot of fun. Yeah, it That's is a lot of fun. You get you get great stories yeah. that you cannot get when you are operating Excel. Yeah, very good. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you, Andrew. This was a pleasure. Till next we'll time. We'll talk again soon. Yeah. See you. Peace.